The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. And now, here's Brandon. And we are back with another great week here on The Brandon Peters Show. On today's episode, we'll be discussing 1991's Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead. Coming along for that, I'm very delighted to welcome an author of such terrific children's books as The Tangelo Series, Out of the Box, and The Royal Heart, Greg McGoon. Hello. Hello. Hey, happy to have you here. Very exciting. And looking forward to talking about Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. I, I'll, I'll say right up front, it's a movie with this show with like, oh, tell me a movie that I never expected someone throw. It took me by surprise. I was like, yes, don't. Because you were like, I might change my mind. I'm like, don't change your mind. I was thinking of the No, I mean, like within seconds, they were like, tell me about a movie that you love that most people wouldn't expect or something. And like within seconds, that came to mind. And then I went back and forth, but I was like, nope, this is it. Like, the first one. It's first the- one. And it's a classic and it's iconic. And I will tell you why. All right. So. But let, let's talk about you first. I always start with my guest and letting people know who the person who's going to talk about Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is. One of the things, I mean, going to your earliest roots that I noticed you like talk about, you grew up in a candy store. I did. My mom owned a candy store before I was born. And then obviously I was born and then she still owned one. <laughs> and you know, I was in a candy store all the time in my hometown. My mom was known as a candy lady and her life revolved around candy. She sold her store actually when I was about 10 years old. I was devastated. I think more devastated about that than my parents' divorce. I was like, the candy store is going away <laughs> because it was like a second home for me. And through those 10 years of me being alive, it would move to like three locations on the same street in like my hometown. It just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then she ended up working for a candy distributor. And six years ago now, she was inducted into the International Candy Hall of Fame. So my mom is one of very few women who is a part of the Candy Hall of Fame. The plaques are currently, I want to say at the Hershey factory in Pennsylvania, but there is talks about doing a candy museum in DC. It's been in the works for a while. And if so, the plaques will be moved there. So, yeah, my mom is a candy lady and I grew up in a candy store. And That's exciting. That. Is there any like candy that you just had enough of from that experience or one with like a seat or first that and then okay. it's a loaded question. And then like a dis- no. secret discovery that's like you just wouldn't have found out any other way than being raised in a candy store. Or would you know uh, differently? Uh, that is an interesting question. I mean, that's the thing is like, I actually grew up in a candy store consuming obscene amounts of candy and I never got a cavity. So I'm already a freak of nature right there. Well, the one thing that I did actually kind of learn, which you wouldn't really think about, but then it's logical when you do is candy is technically recession proof. It's one of the few like industries that during a recession actually does well because Ah. people have to make so many sacrifices that like going out to dinner maybe won't happen, but getting a little piece of candy might like it's kind of that 
neutral item that is like that little special treat thing that actually can keep the business alive. I know during the pandemic, the industry has been hurting. I mean, I'm not involved in it anymore. My mom still is, but like that's because theme parks are closed and everything where right. actual traffic is. But during like the 2008 recession and like other recessions prior to that, candy actually can do quite well. I mean, that and like porn are the two like <laughs> basic like recession proof like industries that you're kind of safe in. It's just not really like pandemic proof. So I always found that kind of interesting that candy business actually did quite well during troubled times because, and this actually, and I didn't think of it when I picked the movie because I love this movie. However, I did have a job at the age of 12. I worked at a different candy store, not my mom's because she didn't own one anymore, but my experience got me hired at a candy (laughs) store in my hometown. I'm candy royalty. Come on. I, I was. And I actually was the candy manager. Like official title had keys to the store and the safe at 14 years old. Did, was, um, did, you, did you did you abbreviate manager to man? So you were the candy man? <laughs> Doc? No, I wasn't that uh, clever back then. Okay. <laughs> I was with my I was with my decorations, but not with that. But that would have been good. I do have a children's book that I wrote that's kind of a very fantastical abstract candy story, like children's book that eventually I want done, but I'm more picky about how it's going to be styled. So I'm not rushing to get that one released yet, but I love it. So candy is still like a part of me, but I retired at the age of 15 from that life. So it's been, it's been a few years since my involvement hands-on with the candy industry, but, but candy I love you it. got sick of candy you discovered? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> candy... You know, I got sick of all candy, to be honest, for like Mm -hmm. a good six years. And what really set it off was I was working all the time and I just would consume as I went along the day. Typically, I think one of my favorites was chocolate covered gummy bears, but I ate a lot of ice cream and I once got very sick off of it and went to a play and had to leave the play and barely made it to the bathroom before all that candy just erupted out of me. And at that day, I realized I don't need that much candy in my life anymore. So I kind of took a break from chocolate for a little while. And I mean, I guess least favorite candy would probably be I don't know which you said, um, favorite and like what least favorite? like a secret. Well, one that you think you wouldn't have known about had you not been around so much candy. And then one that was like, uh, you got sick of from it. So we got the sick. Okay. Literally. So I guess chocolate would be the sick. I literally got sick off of chocolate. I mean, it was like I was just like letting out a milkshake. It was not like a warm one. It was not pleasant. You know, one that I wouldn't know about, you know, I think a lot of those retro candies being remade, but there's actually one candy that I'm obsessed with. And my mom still to this day gets them for me. They're these like violet candies. Mm-hmm. And I actually have like two boxes like over in my drawer. They basically everybody for years made fun of me and kept being like, why are you eating like soap? And I was like, it's so good. And it's these like little hard candies. They're called like violet candies. They're flavored. They're basically like just hard Pez type squares. And I'm obsessed with them. I was like addicted to, I could just eat Mm. just packets of these like retro violet candies that have been around for what, 70, 80 years. I don't even know obsessed with them. So that one candy, had I not have worked in a candy store, probably would never have like thought, "Mm, I want this like old person candy for back in the day. (laughs) Like back then you would not like expect anybody or any child to actually like it. Gotcha. You mentioned, you know, getting sick at a theater, but you do have a, at a play, but you have a theater background. I do. And 
was that like your first, one of your first like passions to strive after? Yes. So my retiring from candy actually was due to theater. Uh, I became more heavily involved in theater in high school and then after high school or during, and then there was a children's theater program I was in starting at the age of like 10. And eventually my friend and I ran the program 20 years later, but I hadn't been involved in it from 10 years old to like 28 before it got canceled or something Mm -hmm. or 27. So I always kept it like a part of my life. And I would fly back from New York because I was living in New York, even though I was in California and doing that. And then when I moved to New York, I got into theater and I wanted to, and I helped out at off, off Broadway theaters. I kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything, but theater was what drove me to New York. Well, actually, it was modeling, which I had, like, but I didn't like that. But like, theater was what I like excited me in New York that I wanted to pursue when I actually mm-hmm. got there. So I dabbled in that. And most of my experience came from high school, actually, which thankfully I went to a high school that was very much encouraging of the arts. So there was a lot of connections to be made through that. And I actually did a lot of scenic design as well through high school. And my former high school teacher who was in charge of our tech classes. She actually freelanced with Disney and Universal and all the major players. So after graduation, she like was like, oh, do you want to help out with things? So actually through her got to experience kind of some fun projects with Disney and other doing like scenic work. So that was able to translate to New York and do a little bit of like sets and um, prop styling. So I kind of, I I moved kind of behind the scenes and just put myself in that creative world and freelanced my way through New York. So my experience in high school theater actually like allowed me to work professionally in commercial print and in terms of like acting work too. So all those kind of experience build on each other. And, and then I did perform in Broadway bears, the giant charity, like kind of strip show type thing Okay. or burlesque. It wasn't like strip, but yeah, yeah. Burlesque. so I performed in that for three years. So I, like I said, I was all over the place in New York, but yeah, theater was what really excited me and the community that's involved in it and just creating a show. And from there I was able to branch all over. Excellent. Excellent. And through that, you're a pretty talented photographer. I've taken a look at some of your work that you have up and available. And it uh, looks like there was a trip to like Ghana that really inspired you in many ways. <laughs> I mean, how much time, I mean, we're going to talk about the movie. Um, uh, we, so, will. we get to it. No, I know. I'm just kidding. So Ghana actually <laughs> was um, an unexpected little thing. I started a nonprofit in mm-hmm. 2012 and then I ended up moving to Ghana and let's just say it didn't quite, I showed up and it wasn't as I expected. I, I had a connection to Ghana. So it wasn't like an entirely blind, like go online and sign up for like tourism charity thing or whatever. It was kind of through somebody who was in my hometown who had a program there that I wanted to help develop that was related to arts. Well, the short version is that really wasn't a thing there. I mean, it was, but it wasn't really. So I kind of decided to stay anyways and didn't really tell anybody. And I showed up at the National Drama Company of Ghana and said, hi, I'm from America. I live here now and I love theater. And yeah, if there's anything I can do. And they just kind of stared at me and didn't know what to do, but they're like, okay, you can sit around. And I was like, great. So I just hung out with them for a while and ended up performing with the National Drama Company of Ghana at the National Theater. And then around the country, they did a little tour and I was able to like photograph them and go on like part of their leg of the tour. 
And those connections actually translated to five years later when I went back to Ghana and performed in a Tennessee Williams show out there with a director from New York, a brilliant Tennessee Williams kind of expert who has done 10 blocks in the Camino Real in multiple countries. And he always wanted to do Ghana. I met him through a friend of a friend who needed me to help out with something. And then he ended up asking me what I did. I told him about Ghana. Next thing I know, a year later, I'm in Ghana performing again with the drama company, but this time Tennessee Williams. And then two years later, they came to America oh. and did the same show and performed in various places outdoors, in, including DC. So I got the drama company finally to America after meeting them back in 2012, I want to say, is when I first lived there. Theater was a heavy driving force while I was there, but I met incredible people just navigating my way through. I met some designers out there, one of which is a close friend, and she just started her own fashion line, all being made in Ghana to empower workers and all the good stuff out there. So that country will have a special place for me. And yeah, and theater was a big part of that too. So that's a great story. I really, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We touched on that. I mean, there's a lot more to that story, yeah. but it is, but that's yeah, um, but yeah. That's so for the the like I Peter said, show everything. after dark episode, we're talking all it <laughs> up. Yeah, there there is there are some of those too. But that that experience kind of was in 2012, and those contact like the people that I met there and became friends with, whether they were there or I met people who were in Ghana from other parts of the world or from the U.S. as well, just randomly wandering the country, and they still are friends of mine too. Yeah. Yeah. So my life has taken a lot of very like kind of wavy turns along the way that's led me to do photography. And there I kind of bartered my way through photography. So that kind of picked up my photography skills. And then I did that professionally for like a couple of years after I got back from Ghana. So well-rounded here. And I want to take that right into your children's books that you've been <laughs> writing that are pretty, I, I, I was looking at them and I was like, oh man, this is High quality, so I would need to read them to my daughter. She'll she'll quite enjoy them. It's right up her alley, I would think. But you you've got a series called the Tangalos, and correct is that, is that your first one was the Tangalos. The first one was out of the box, and that was kind box. of like a one off before I even knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Technically, the first Tangalos was the second one I wrote, but it was the third to be released okay. because the Royal Heart came out second, and that kind of put me on the map so to speak, because it has a transgender princess in it. Mm -hmm. I personally don't choose to call it a transgender fairy tale. A lot of people do. It's a fairy tale with a transgender princess because I think the story is broader to that and it's more about love and acceptance and just for the idea of just welcoming the person in your life, whether you're a parent and you just accept your child and being a leader is not determined by gender either. So at the end right. of the day, this yeah so it's a fairy tale about like kind of rising up to be your true self and also be the leader you're always meant to be no matter the gender for me that story kind of blew up and got me more attention than i anticipated at the time <laughs> and then getting like interviews by random places and i was like oh okay this is happening and that kind of solidified me really wanting to do more children's book more children's books but the tangalos was really, I think I wrote beforehand is when I realized I was like, this is what I should be doing and want to be doing. And I'm thankful for the Royal Heart giving me kind of that platform to continue sharing other stories. 
because the tangalos are all for kind of emotional wellness mm-hmm. and just communication and talking to children. And I'm well aware that they are quite elevated for their age range, considering, I mean, it's written in a very rhyme, like kind of sing song, Dr. Seuss-esque way, but with some difficult themes and words in there. And I did that on purpose. I don't think we need to simplify things too much for children, but I also think there should be an outlet to have something they can grow with. So Mm -hmm. if they're four and they only laugh at the tongue twisters and the silly words in it, great, but they're still familiarizing themselves with kind of circular thinking and just knowing that there are challenges that we face rather than just children's stories that are all like sweet and happy endings because I've worked with a lot of children over the years and there's unfortunately a lot of situations that aren't as enthusiastic and as loving and children need to have coping mechanisms and be able to work through that so the tangalos are kind of an important way to create that platform to just introduce more complex thinking as well as just knowing that Life is full of that kind of ups and downs, and it may be great one moment, it may fall apart the next moment, and you just have to recognize that you might be going through a cycle and not just happy ending, okay, great, and now we move on, now what? Because, I mean, again, that has its place too. I think everything does have a place. It's just these stories aren't really the story that you hand to a kid and say, okay, have fun, bye, and like walk away and let them read. It's really an experience to share with the child. Pull a phrase, as a parent... (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's the kind of stuff I want my kids to be like with. And, and I, I enjoy that you are not, you're treating them almost on a level of equality. Like you're not stupid. We can introduce these ideas. We can teach them stuff. They understand. Cause I, I have, they, they're, they know more than you think. Like a lot of people Absolutely. generally or want to coddle and baby them, but they are, they're able to take things straight at face value it's incredible what they pick up on stuff and like having material like that is necessary. Like I would rather, there's a, there's a book my daughter reads and I hate to dog the author, but he did spell her name wrong in his autograph, but it's called like the staring contest. And it's just, have you seen that one? I don't, uh, I don't think so. It's just a pair of eyes for like 10 pages. uh, (laughs) Like go gotcha. Like, and I was like, man, I don't need everything. To, I mean, they can have escapism too, but of uh, course. But, I mean, yeah, yeah. I I really like what you've got going, and especially the you know the royal heart. That's pioneering into like that's why you know, I mean you get attention because I mean you're a pioneer with this. I mean I can't think of too many children's books like that introducing like a trans character like that as in normalcy even just as yeah that's how it's going. So I mean that's super important. Yeah, and that even came to be because I was trying to write a a fairy tale with with LGBT themes, but I also wanted like a gay prince one. And this Mm -hmm. was back in 2015 when I wrote it, but I already had started a different one. But the idea kind of took me over on the prince fairy tale that it got ahead of me. And I, it wasn't a children's book anymore. It was like a five part, like outline epic thing that I was like, I'm in over my head. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. (laughs) And um, I just stripped it down almost as a writing exercise and just kind of had to take a breath and just wrote a story. And the Royal Heart came out and it's essentially a Cinderella story in terms of not like rich to poor, but it's more of that transformation moment instead of like a ball gown. It's just like, this is who I truly am. Mm -hmm. And that goes beyond the, even though it's showcased through gender of male to female, it's really that moment of like, this is who I am. So it could be for anybody like who is coming out or sharing a part of themselves. It's almost like this book being 
given or shared with somebody is like, I'm like the parents in this book, you can trust me. And then like, so that part, like, so whoever receives the book has that comfort of knowing like, oh, somebody gave me this. So I know I can feel comfortable sharing who I am with them type of thing. Mm -hmm. So that the, the book is almost that like gift of freedom of sharing. So if parents can go like, I don't know, we might think our kids have things that they need to share or about them, then that book is potentially one of those stories that they can say like, this story is wonderful because we will react like the king and queen in this. Like, we love you. I mean, it Um, it speaks volumes because I mean, you got even the kid that's not going to be will be like, oh, it's like that book or, you know, it gets them comfortable and used to the idea from an early age. In, yep. a, in their terms of acceptance, which we don't have a lot of. No, um, I mean, we're getting more. And I think mm-hmm. kids are, it just, well, that's the thing is like, kids are generally accepting early on until they're told not to. Right. So that's the tricky part. So I think just having more tangible resources to show them acceptance rather than just their natural like being of acceptance, but this the tangible resources can at least last longer so they can go oh no i saw this this is something that can grow with me rather than just hearing i shouldn't like something i can be like but the book (laughs) so anything to like add to that acceptance and narrative ideally is what i want to help with so i'm not trying to change the system or rewrite the wheel just like add another tool to that toolbox and i mean kids are kids are different i mean you have your own i'm sure that they're receptive in to ideas in different ways so you can't just have one book for every right. topic and call it good you need like 20 because you don't know which one the kid will actually connect with so it's hard to even say which is the best because you don't i mean it depends on the kids so if it's out there for them and it helps them then wonderful and if they mm-hmm. don't get it then there's something else that hopefully they can find that they will and one more thing on the book and i gotta ask you so yeah. I, was, I was perusing around one of your books is currently on amazon.com for a new copy for $920.99. It's also $775 used. There's one for 44 bucks, but how does it make you feel? I mean, don't get me started with that one. Amazon is such a tricky thing. Um, I, I didn't I've, check I've eBay. I was like, I'm going to go with this high price. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what those are or how those even exist or how that even works. My publisher, I actually just messaged the other day about that. And Amazon makes it kind of tricky for smaller publishers. And that's what the mm-hmm. Tanglos are and the Royal Heart and all those are published through as a smaller publisher. So ideally, my publisher wants you to buy through their publishing company. Right. <laughs> because that just is like less middleman and all the above. But people don't want to pay for shipping. So you can find the book on Amazon. You can find them. You just have to click on like other sellers and then you have to like go through there and it'll list it as unavailable. But when you put it in your cart, it will be available. So So they just make it a lot of work and who, nobody wants to do that much work nowadays. So the books are available on Amazon for their actual like retail price. It is hilarious that it does say, I mean, I'm just like worried that people are going to think that there's like more to it than that because well, we all saw I, what I happened saying, like Wayfair and the high prices. And I'm like, no. why are my books? <laughs> I meant in terms of rarity and, and feel like I didn't know yeah. if it was out of print and it's just like someone trying to make out of it. But I think that's what people think. But if you go to Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. 
it's it, like it's available or if you go to the publisher website it's available for some reason amazon and like amazon and my books do not get along except for my oliver gilmore the dog book which came out last year mm-hmm. that one is definitely no problems on amazon but all my books through that particular publisher just for some reason just keep kind of competing for attention and People feel like if, I mean, I right now say just do not buy the book for $900 because A, I'm not profiting from it and B, don't like just email me directly if you're like considering paying that much. And Dear wealthy uh, family who really wants that book. (laughs) Yeah. Just email me directly and we'll take care of that for you. And like, we could probably find a way to get you a signed copy for, you know, the real price even. Yeah. I, I find that very peculiar about it. I mean, if it keeps to the mystique of it being rare, go for it. I'm not, I'm not against it, but I am kind of bothered that the main place people shop is Amazon. People don't have access. And I just want these stories out because I mean, you don't make money off individual sales at all anyway. So I would rather people just have the story. It's not really going to be much of a moneymaker for me one way or the other. So there is a way to do it. I'm sorry that it's hard on Amazon. Otherwise, go to Barnes & Noble or go through the publisher. You can find all that in my like Instagram links or on my website. You can easily find like all the links to the books that are She came. I'm a babysitter. She saw. Ow! She croaked. Don't tell mom. The babysitter's dead. Now, Christina Applegate spends the summer with no nagging, no curfews, no rules. We got your home entertainment, sir. You have spent over $3,000? <laughs> Don't tell mom. The babysitter's dead. Rock and roll! Ready PG-13. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is directed by Stephen Herrick, written by Neil Landau and Tara Eisen, and stars Christina Applegate, Joanna Cassidy, Keith Coogan, Danielle Harris, Josh Charles, Kimmy Robertson, Jane Brooke, John Getz, Robert High, Gorman, Conchetta, Tomei, and David Duchovny. Five siblings are left all alone all summer when their mom leaves town and the evil babysitter bites the dust. Stephen Herrick, the director got some good cred here uh director of critters bill and ted's excellent adventure the mighty ducks three musketeers mr holland's opus the 101 dalmatians live action one the mark Wahlberg rock star so he had a busy 90s yeah and he's currently a director and producer on the new macgyver series on cbs Oh, I did not know that. Done a bunch of episodes and produced a bunch. Landau, the writer, one of the writers, did an episode of Doogie Howser, Melrose Place, uh, MTV's Undressed, if you remember that one, and uh, lots of Young and the Restless. And then Eisen, she did that same Doogie Howser episode and an episode of the Ace Ventura animated series. I remember that, actually. Yeah. I do remember the animated series. Yeah. So, uh, Greg, what made you bring. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead to the show. You know, I I don't know why. It's just one of those movies that 
I, I love this movie. You don't even understand how much I love this movie. I um, want to. I mean, yeah. We're here. So, so okay. <laughs> um, I think I, I make everybody watch it, too. Like, if I meet somebody, I'm like, have you seen Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's <laughs> I said, No, I'm like, we're watching it right now. So, I mean, I've easily seen the movie over 30 times. I know I watched it at least eight times last year. I watched it twice already this year. And the more I watched it, the more I appreciate it, which is interesting about this movie, too, because it is such a 90s movie. The look of it, there's so many things that aren't relevant really to today, or at least not relevant, at least the way they do things in that movie aren't things that teenagers would even understand today. So that's kind of partially why I do love it. And I know that they are planning on doing a diverse remake, as they say, starring a black family is one article that I read. And I think that was, they were talking about it last year and it's still in the works to develop it. So the movie has been on my mind. Before we even like look at just the overall plot of the movie, we just need to appreciate the brilliance that is Christina Applegate, who turned this role and does like with all of her roles, because Kelly Bundy made her popular, mm-hmm. roles that could easily be insufferable and annoying or frustrating. She brings a nuance to it and a likability to potentially dumb and unlikable characters. I think it gets overlooked uh, what a great comedic actress she is throughout her entire career. A hundred percent. I mean, and she does theater as well. She's done live musical theater. And now at least people are recognizing her talents still with Dead to Me. But this movie, I think if you actually watch Christina Applegate and just the subtlety of all her little choices and the way she moves her eyes and the way she reacts, you want to like her from the moment she comes on screen, even when she's being a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Bottom line. So right there, I'm like sold. I'm into it. I love her. And then we have Joanna Cassidy playing the most brilliant boss in the entire world. She's fabulous, yes. Rose Lindsay is probably the greatest caricature of like a boss. Just one of the funniest, most bizarre boss situations ever in a movie. And you know what? This movie doesn't get credit, even though I'm not a woman, but still is such like this empowering movie because it's women supporting women in this movie too. Mm -hmm. And the more I watch it, the more I recognize how there's only one woman in this movie who's kind of difficult and it's the receptionist yes. like carolyn yeah she's a pain and you know even her acting is brilliant in it too she makes choices even the way she says like personnel like it's just every little fine detail it looks like the director nailed it and just everybody looks like they were having fun with their roles in this movie so just acting alone i'm already think it's brilliant now we break down the story <laughs> and i have to look at it now like now that i'm an adult. And I work with 17 year olds still to this day doing theater workshops. I've directed shows and I've worked in schools that are like less funded, underprivileged schools, or um, just schools that have like a lack of resources to some very kind of more high-end schools. And even my former high school I've worked on with as an adult. And you kind of have to look at this movie from a very specific kind of socioeconomic stat like standpoint, because Sue Ellen Crandall, like her family and everybody, they have a rather large house, even though for whatever reason it's falling apart. And let's just start right here. What did her mom do for a living? Because she was able to go to Australia for two months, like and right there house. off the bat. Yeah. So they live in the boonies of LA, as they called it. They like they said boonies, I want to say in the movie. They're just like, yeah, well, we live in like the boonies. So they live somewhere around LA 
in right. a massive house on a fairly large property, but the mom can go off to, and I'm not like, I'm, I'm a couple of years younger than the mom in that movie now, which is crazy to think that like that mom is 37 in that movie. And you're like, Hmm, interesting. I, I want to say she's 37. Yeah, I think she's got like five um, kids. Yeah. Yeah, she has five kids, 37, has a large house, dad's out of the picture, and yet she has this new boyfriend we <laughs> never see who's like, let's go to Australia for two months. And it's like, all right, mom, okay. But you know what? With five kids at th- that, that age, like having the opportunity to go away for two months, I'm like, do it, go for it. <laughs> You've earned it. I think that's set up believably enough as an adult now. I'd be like, Ugh, if I could get away, I would. I mean, I don't even have kids. I did have a boss uh, one time. He went to Australia because his sister lived there, and he was gone like a little over a month. Because if you're gonna go all the way out there, you might as well stay for a bit. I had friends who told me that too, being like, "You should visit us." They don't live in Australia anymore, but they, you should visit. And I was like, "Yeah, I just need the time." He's like, "Oh, you need at least three weeks to a month." And I'm like, "Okay, well, that's doable." <laughs> like, it's just it, there's so many random little like details, but. The acting again is just so on point, and this everybody takes these characters with stride and like honest, a certain level of earnest, like to it, like earnest nature to it, that you understand them, even if it's far fetched. Because Mm -hmm. the movie opens with like a 30 second kind of cartoon almost of like this babysitter going crazy, and it sets the tone in that very 90s style of all right, we're getting something that's kind of over dramatic, over the top, outlandish. And although it is very outlandish, you still go, okay, I get you. Like, it works for you. It may not be true for everybody, but for you, I get that. And I think that's what movies need. There's a lot of times where I'll watch a movie and I'm like, that's not believable at all. And I don't accept it with that character. In this movie, the setup isn't very believable. And a lot of just the opportunities aren't believable but I believe it for them. And that's right. all the movie needs to do for me is well, I believe it for them. It's told from a kid perspective. So it's allowed to have kid results and the way it plays, I would say, if that's a hundred percent. And, and I mean, going back to what I mentioned earlier is, I mean, I had essentially like a full-time job at 14. I had keys to a store. I was running something. I, I implemented an ordering system for the mm-hmm. candy, which they were using still to this year. Like I did a spreadsheet at 14. I was, I was doing all that. So at 17, it's believable. And a lot of the students that I've worked with, I know one that I directed in a show has three jobs currently. They're not as glamorous as like working in an office building, but has three jobs. And he had a job at 17 as well. And now he's 19. So watching kids work isn't far-fetched, but you know, it makes me wonder like, well, first of all, this family is very white and attractive. So like Christina Applegate is obviously an attractive woman who has a certain level of maturity to her already, even though she plays a teenager brilliantly. She embodies this idea of what an adult should be really well, but it kind of plays into that like ambiguous age kind of Scarlett Johansson kind of does where she played a 17 year old and like a 30 year old in the same year in a movie. Christina Applegate kind of had that flexibility or has that look. She was younger to look older. So when she is dressed up, the boss says like, what are you 26, 27 based on her resume, Mm -hmm. but looks wise, I would believe her to be in her 20s or to like 24, 25, I believe it. But I also believed her at like looking like she was 17 at the beginning of the movie too. Right. Like if somebody said, 
she's a 17 year old. I'm not like, no, she's not like you do with like 90210 or other teen shows where you're like, they're not 17. <laughs> I believe her as 17 and I believe her as 25. And that's a testament to her acting and just her overall demeanor and her way of kind of embodying those roles. But that's what made me think though, is I've worked with her and I've, I've done talks with students who are 17, who have lifestyles that are drastically different with 10 times the amount of responsibility, who actually are raising their siblings, whose parents aren't really in the picture, whose parents don't necessarily even speak English. So they're 17, raising kids, going to school, doing all the above. So there's a certain level of privilege that you have to kind of the lens of privilege you have to look at. Um, don't tell mom the babysitter's mm-hmm. dead with already. They have a certain level of kind of resources, despite their house being disheveled and a bit of a wreck. If the mom can disappear for two months to Australia, they're not like struggling in the truth. And the the younger sibling plays baseball and like the other kid's a pothead who has this like room with all the decorations. Like, you know, flag on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which like traumatizes the, the babysitter when she arrives and she has like, like if that didn't kill her. So you have to kind of look at it as like, these kids aren't without much. Like they may not have excess, but they're not without much. So it's tricky to showcase this, like depending on who they're going to showcase this movie to, it might be strange for somebody to work being like, she thinks that's tough work. I'll show you what tough work is. So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and look at it from like kind of that middle America vibe, because I know kids nowadays who are doing 10 times the amount of work that Suellen or Swell was doing in that movie. So I am curious to know how they're going to modernize it because I love how at the beginning of the movie, when she gets the job at Clown Dog and she's having that talk with Brian, Josh Charles, and she's cleaning out the vats and she's, and he's like, well, why don't you get something like, why don't you get another job? And she's like, no, no place is going to hire a teenager to do something that's not disgusting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then there's truth to that. Right now there's 17 year olds making like, you know, 20 grand off of TikTok. Yeah. So it, it's, it's fascinating to know what, people have to do for survival because they set up don't tell mom the babysitter's dead with kind of an extreme circumstance where they really were in survival mode this wasn't just excess cash they needed Mm -hmm. their all their money was gone because they ended up in trunk with the dead babysitter because that's what you do you even accept that they stick the babysitter in the trunk of a car and drop her off at the mortuary in this movie like you just go oh i get it trunk within a trunk to go, yeah. to go there and no investigation happens. They just bang. nothing. I mean, because probably because there was money in it, like because there was money on the dead body, they probably were like, oh, well, this is probably like hush money. And I just like in my mind, I just like justified everything about that movie. I was like, it's oh, not important. Yeah, it's, just, it's, a, it's a comedy. It's it it sets things in motion. And what happens after is what's important. So, oh, I mean, even their car getting stolen by drag queens, Liza Minnelli, Marilyn Monroe, and Dolly Parton drag queens (laughs) steal their car. Zany, yeah. Well, the old woman's car. So, and again, it's that although it's it's a straightforward um, story, it's clean. It's written very clean. Mm -hmm. Like everything is touched on. Everything is kind of justified. They had two cars. One car gets stolen. They can't get it back because technically that car doesn't belong to them. So there's no real disconnect if you just embrace the world that they live in. So like, again, this is why I appreciate just from a movie making standpoint is I just, 
immediately embrace the world that they live in. And that's a testament to the, again, the actors and even the director who was able to create a believable situation with such a, like an outlandish storyline. And then even looking at how she got the job showing up and just like conveniently enough, the boss is walks through the hallway and is like, Oh, you're applying for the receptionist. Let me look at your resume. Oh, you're a pro without an interview. Right. But what's funny is there's self-awareness. Like even Christina Applegate's reaction, like Suellen's reaction to that is uh, like, are you sure? Like, so there's an awareness at least to it. It's not just, she's like, great. It's just kind of this notion that, we're in for the ride and she's going to take it with stride. But also with that company, they hire, and then you see that they're in the dumps. So maybe that, that kind of hiring goes with how the business has been handled a bit, you know, (laughs) where to even like kind of start dissecting Joanna Cassidy's Rose as the boss. Uh, What's funny is as Sue Ellen kind of becomes an adult throughout this movie, you actually start recognizing how all the adults in this movie almost start behaving childlike. Mm -hmm. And you actually get, so that's why, again, there's certain things about this movie that I fully appreciate because it actually highlights that adults don't actually know what they're doing either. Just the same as kids. Right. But you, but you get it in parallel to Sue Ellen kind of understanding this new level of responsibility. And she's no longer just kind of imitating what it is to be a professional. She becomes a professional. She embraces it. She doesn't become her mom, but she becomes a version of her mom, not through this idea of like, oh, this is what I have to do, but because it naturally comes with responsibility. Mm -hmm. So that's why I appreciate the setup in it because they need food. Okay. So how are we going to do that? So they actually have to start thinking logically and for that reason, I respect this movie and I think all kids should watch it because I've noticed, and this is not true for all kids, but I, I've noted from some experiences, kids are getting lazier nowadays, <laughs> like in a different sort of way. Yeah. I think because of technology, because of certain resources and certain things that are being given to them, or at least because of game. I don't know what exactly it is, but there is a certain level of kind of ease and comfort that kids have nowadays or hate to say it and generalize because I hate generalizing, but there is certain level of entitlement, which I know existed in the nineties. Don't get me wrong, but there is this kind of rough entitlement this, this entitlement that a lot of teenagers have nowadays, at least when I've done workshops and other activities or done scenic things with kids. And there's this attitude of like, well, why do I have to do it? Like somebody else will do it. Or there's more of a leniency to let kids get away with certain things where, I mean, there are actual schools, like you're not allowed to tell a kid to pick up his litter, like on school grounds, like you're Mm -hmm. not like actually allowed to. And that just blows my mind. That's not something that would have like ever happened when I was in school. If you drop something like any adult could be like, pick that up. Nowadays, (laughs) we're more sensitive to certain things like that. So kids aren't kind of getting pushed in the same direction. They have a whole new set of challenges, a whole new collection of issues with social media and just emotional wellness and just the constant barrage of just not feeling worthy as humans (laughs) that they have to deal with which is very different than what I would say my experiences were. And I didn't grow up. I was, I was definitely not a teen. I was much younger in 91 when this movie came out. I do have an older brother though. That's another story, but I just know that there was a sort of attitude of figure it out. And this movie touches on that just like, well, you got to figure it out. 
But what's nice about it is it comes from a good place. The kids don't want to call their mom and pull her away from her vacation mm -hmm. in Australia. Like they like the idea of being alone, but in a weird way, there's a level of selflessness that these kids are showing being like, you know what? Mom's had it rough. We don't really want to bring her back and disrupt her trip. I mean, we can do this on our own. So immediately they kind of go into survival mode and Sue Ellen kind of takes on this responsibility, both just because she has to, and also because and she doesn't want to have her mom back, but she also wants to do it for her mom. So it's layered and I'll, and I'm going to give the movie and maybe I'm reading into it much, but I just appreciate her willingness to do this because I don't know many kids nowadays who would be as quick to say, we have a problem. Let's figure it out. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to sacrifice my summer. I'm going to figure this out for both of us. And they flipped a pizza box for heaven's sake to decide it. Right. But they took the initiative and that initiative I sometimes feel like is lacking nowadays. So right there, there's something about this movie that holds a special place in my heart because I was working at a young age and I appreciate Sue Ellen's willingness to jump on board with that. Do you think there's from kids today, there's less of a willingness to want to become an adult as more and more of like being a kid forever is acceptable with certain interests, things like that. Like, do you think there's a less of a desire to, for them to want to act like an adult or to look up to being an adult? Because I feel like there's a lot of where it hits you in life or something like I need to be mature, more responsible seems to be just delayed. Like for me, it hit later than it probably should have. But do you think there's like that with this, with a more modern generation, there's less of a de desire to act like an adult? Yes, because I don't think that there's really a clear definition on what an adult is anymore. I think we used to have one. Right. I think society kind of created this image of what an adult and what what working meant and what responsibility meant. I think now that shifted just because of what opportunities are available now. So I don't think there necessarily needs to be that same notion of what it is to be an adult and responsible but also there are certain necessities about life that we're not really teaching kids anymore either. I don't, I mean, kids aren't really learning about taxes or other certain necessities right. about life like they used to. And I kind of, I feel like that's missing. And I think that does need right. to start, you know, ideally be incorporated back into, because I think there's a level of codependency we're seeing more so with kids. I think right. they're growing up a lot faster emotionally than kids in the nineties did. But in practical ways, they're regressing. Right. So trade-off of what growing up actually means because they're exposed to so much more now, but their ability to actually, you know, boil water and fix things is not as, I think, in general, as achievable nowadays as it was, you know. 30 years ago for teenagers of the same age. Cause I so. like, even looking at like our entertainment, I mean, it's dominated by movies. I like to see, you know, comic book movies and you know, all genre franchise stuff where there used to be the adult movies. There used to be all sorts. Now it's all mixed together and like used to want to grow up to want to see those adult movies, but now there are none really playing yeah. to see. And, and when it, growing up in the nineties too, we were, our entertainment and stuff fed to us was like, but the office guy is boring. I don't, don't crush my dreams, dad. I don't want to be like you. And that office job wasn't bad if people had it, but we were trained to like think, oh no, I don't want to be that dreamless guy or, you know, wandering his yep. dead job. I and mean, those aren't bad 
they weren't bad jobs. If no. That's what you could, you know, support a family. You could find yourself creatively. You could do things on the side, but they never showed us that. It was always, oh, office dad. Exactly. Well, then that's what kind of this movie does well. Well, they make all the men in this movie overall sleazy, except for Brian, Josh Charles. He's who, actually who normally the one plays sleazy guys later on in his career. Right. And then, but he, in that movie, he's actually genuine. He's wholesome. And he actually has a good head on his shoulder because mm-hmm. he's realistic. He's like, oh, I'm taking this job at Clown Dog because I'm paying my way through college. Right. That's believable, even currently. Like, he just, his family doesn't necessarily have the resources to send him to college. I know those kids nowadays just took a little, like, you know, just fast food job just to do it mm-hmm. great Suellen kind of already had this idea of well this is above me or like there's a sense of like kind of she does start off with a little bit of entitlement she's like I'm gonna quit this job but that really was outside of her comfort zone and she was very fortunate for her circumstances to change to right. work in fashion DAW. but she wasn't um, going for that she was going for reception so i mean she still kept her bar at a reasonable oh that's the other thing i love about this movie too is that the receptionist and i carolyn yeah who obviously is really annoyed that sue Ellen starts working there of course but i just love how they end up saying well carolyn was supposed to get moved up to be my executive assistant from receptionist and then carolyn's complaining is like this woman applying to be a receptionist ends up as an executive assistant and you're like you were a receptionist and you were going to be a, like, like, I just love how the company like makes right. that jump of like receptionist easily. Meanwhile, you have like poor sweet Kathy who's just like, Oh, I applied for this job. You must be great. And again, like women supporting women, there's no bitterness. There's support there. Sue Ellen, like again, slightly takes advantage she of the does, situation. Yeah. But at the same time though, that's technically good leadership. And I get where it's like, delegation. I get where Rose is saying, Oh, a hundred percent. So I'm just like poor Kathy, who's doing all this extra work, who's helping, who thinks it's like an honor and a privilege, who accepts Sue Ellen as this person of authority is just heartwarming and like heartbreaking simultaneously, because obviously Kathy's more suited for the job than Sue Ellen is, but Kathy takes it with stride. You just have this awful receptionist who feels like she's entitled to executive yes. assistant when She's probably just slightly more qualified than Sue Ellen even just because she already works there. So it's just funny to me that that job was just like receptionist to executive assistant is the pathway. But what's funny is Rose is so inappropriate, but you love her for it. Like you just like you have this like sweet talk of like, oh, every woman over 25 should have a cucumber in their refrigerator. Just the things that she says, or even just right off the bat when she's talking about like sleazy Gus and it's like, oh, he likes my fire. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And you're like, yeah. what are you saying? Like, this is your assistant. Like, you just met this woman. So but you could say that like, back then at work, probably, and just be fine. You could. But what's funny is like, I love it for Rose, but then the minute Gus, he doesn't even, well, and again, that's the other part that I'm like, I love when they go out for that lunch, when Gus takes mm-hmm. her out for lunch. First of all, she doesn't know her martini. Would you like sweet or dry? She's like, a little bit of both. And you're like, oh, Sue Ellen. Uh-huh. Um, and no one questions it. But I mean, that shows you what kind of guy Gus is to not question it because he probably thinks, yeah, there, there's some red flags right there. Well, they didn't, but she also, didn't know what petty cash was either. True. Earlier. But why would she? Well, um, yeah. But that's what I think I appreciate with this movie too is these teenagers don't try to be older than they are either. Like even though Sue Ellen technically is trying to be an adult because of her job, 
She's also still a teenager. She goes on that date with Brian at the Grunion run. It's a very teenage, wholesome date. Like, she's not trying to talk about sex and drugs and parties. She's she's actually a typical teenager who is thrown into this career life. And I appreciate that, too, just because she's not trying to grow up faster than she is, but she's becoming more responsible faster than she needs to be. Right. So I respect her for that. But Gus goes on this little tangent where he like says, oh, it's not appropriate to ask your age. And she's like, no, no. And then he goes off on this little tangent about how women age like a fine wine. Meanwhile, he goes, but you look like your early 20s and we can have a poiscoidal cigarette. And you're like, why did you just talk about a woman like aging beautifully and being glorious? And then like explicitly state that you want to have sex with somebody who looks very young. <laughs> it's just the right there. You're just like, who are you, Gus? But Gus he, even he made that transition believable for him. Anybody else, I would have been like, ugh. For him, I'm just like, ooh. But I accept it from him. Yeah. Like, I just, I, I accept all their behaviors for it. And I accept Rose even being into Sleazy Gus. Like, I believe their relationship. And I also sympathize with Rose, too, because they're going to hire from inside. Given Rose's personality, obviously, Kathy probably wouldn't be her best choice of an assistant who would be qualified clearly carolyn wouldn't be because carolyn's insufferable but i think rose in a male dominated field and you kind of get that sense the higher ups above her are men so she's in a she's senior vice president of merchandising or something you kind of get the sense that she's the lone wolf like of authority in mm-hmm. her own little thing so by bringing in somebody outside from the company, it's almost like her grasping for this relatability and this connection to something that doesn't make her feel like she's just one peg on the on the wheel of GAW. And I, I, I think that's maybe why she just immediately is so quick to hire. And again, I'm probably reading into it, but this is why I think this movie is brilliant because it's letting me do this, that I think Rose is so quick to hire Sue Ellen, A, because her fake resume is believable, like she just accepts the resume and the skill set, but also because it's a breath of fresh air for her. It's somebody who's not attached to it. It's somewhere where she can talk about her office romance with Gus without basically creating any other issues with it. Because clearly she's acting inappropriately within reason. And and Sue Ellen gives her an outlet and provides her that outlet. And for that, it makes sense. I don't think she's going to have that same bond with Carolyn. If she would do it, they would just get the work done. But with Kathy, it probably everything would get done, but it also wouldn't bring anything innovative to the job because Kathy doesn't seem like the most innovative of employees, but she's highly efficient. So Sue Ellen is just this new face that Rose can depend on, but also be herself around in an environment where I don't think she can freely be herself as much as she would want to be. So that's why I love their relationship because even at the end of this movie, I mean, spoilers, Sue Ellen reveals the truth and just the heartwarming reaction that Rose has is Mm -hmm. like, did a good job. Like I get it. And no one really cared. And you the amount of times I just am furious with movies where people blow up over the most unnecessary reasons. Like, you know what? Everything worked out. There's no reason to freak out. There's no, like, you lied to me. You did this thing. It's just, I get it. I get you. I understand what you're doing. 
And I love that there isn't this escalated need to blow up. Like, um, I don't know why I just thought of it, but like how to lose a guy in 10 days. Like they're both in a bet. And then when they find out, they like hate each other. And it's just like, why? In my mind, it would be like, oh my God, you were in a bet. I was in a bet too. Uh Like you laugh about it. Like for me, it would be funny. But like in so many movies, it's just like, oh, you lied about it, but I really did fall in love with you. Or in all those teen movies where it's like the hot, really? like the, the nerdy girl turned pretty and it's like, it was a bet to turn me pretty. How could you? But I still fell in love with you. And I'm like, well, we got to a good result. Why add that like escalated freak out? I, I, I appreciate this movie for not creating an unnecessary freak out when you could have easily seen it going in that direction because all Carolyn, the receptionist was trying to do was expose Sue Ellen. Mm-hmm. And the Roses is like, stop it. Like we're doing good work here. Like let's look at the work and not this petty crap. And oh, I like, I wish more people in power would behave that way because it's just so charming to see like this mentorship relationship that grows from it. Sue Ellen actually valuing her work and the ideas that she has. It's corny. I mean, you're just basically making bright the same clothes, but just brighter. I mean, nothing is really that exciting about her ideas, but you just love how everybody comes together for it. Mm -hmm. And it's not some petty thing and it's not some giant, like explode, like unnecessary tangent or like the, the assistant getting up and like calling out on the loudspeaker, like nothing like that really happened. And you see that often in movies and it annoys me and it got squashed so quickly. And even the one freak out that happened and it's rare when that does happen between Brian and Swellen about how they like break up. Like Swellen was in a corner because of course his Brian is the bitchy receptionist. So like Swellen has to like has to alienate. Like she's almost forced to alienate now this guy that she really likes. And there's like she can't tell him the truth and jeopardize it. So she has to create this fake fight and it breaks your heart. But you're just like, you really don't have a choice in this situation. You kind of handled it harsh, but at the same time, you don't really have a choice. So I believe that one and it doesn't feel like it was unnecessary escalated, even though it's annoying that it has to happen. I understand why it does because she's protecting the life that she just built for herself in one whole month. You also have to take into consideration how long this movie takes place. in. so like for all these reasons and just the way these characters justify their behaviors and also show a level of compassion towards each other is just nice to feel and experience and it's like I want to be that boss maybe not talking about myself like sex life with my employees but I want to be that boss where you know what if they're struggling or if they're doing things you want to lift them up and Rose was always lifting justified or not was lifting mm-hmm. Sue Ellen up and Rose had no reason to not lift Sue Ellen up because they don't know what we as right. the viewer know about Sue Ellen. So good for Rose for not being that skeptical, difficult boss. Like Sue Ellen was figuring out a work. She was building relationships within the company. She still had obstacles to do. And it was not made harder by the person in power. And this was, again, a woman in power with an assistant who was also sharing ideas to save the company. It's not even like Rose tried to backstab her assistant. Rose gave Sue Ellen free reign. And it's like, Oh, like touching. Like I know you did that episode about Working Girl, another right. brilliant movie where you have, again, you have like the woman in power, Sigourney Weaver and Melanie Griffith, who's like working her way above and difficult. And then you have 
women trying to steal like Melanie Griffith's thunder. Yeah. You don't have that in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. You have support and you have recognition for a job well done. Yeah, there, there was a working girl, too, that I mean, a woman going into uh, under false pretenses. But she was using somebody for a bit of it. But then she did work her own, do her own magic to the position. But yeah, it was pretty funny. I was like, wow, this is reminding me of working girl in ways. But the boss is supportive. The boss doesn't feel there's only room for one, but there are a lot of similarities, but this one is on the more positive side of the experience. Which is probably why I love it so much because, again, and this is why I do feel empowered while watching this movie because it's also a classic tale, which is why I think it would, in certain ways, it can be updated but I mean, I don't know if it can be updated. It's just, it just, it's somebody learning responsibility put into like that position. I don't know if it will, could ever be the same movie, but it's the classic story of fake it till you make it. And that's a hard thing for me to embrace. I know when I was doing different work and I turned down opportunities just because I didn't believe in myself sometimes. Suwon had no choice. She was just like, I can do this job. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I would be as bold as Sue Ellen. And sometimes I want to embrace my inner Sue Ellen and just being like, I could do that and get it done. I've gotten a little bit better later on as I've grown up, but at seven, I guess there was a certain level of like, I could do that attitude that I had at 17, but I don't know if I would as confident, I've been as confident as she was. And I, and I love her confidence. And, you know, given that I'm, almost twice her age right now, like as that character, not as Christina Applegate, but as Sue Ellen was in that movie, I'm always twice that age now. That confidence is something that I still sometimes wish I had of just, mm-hmm. because I'm a freelancer, I still have to sell myself for various jobs and just sell my work. I know I believe in it and I need, and like, and that's what's most important, but also, you know what, to survive, other people kind of have to believe in it and find it and do it too. So you kind of have to be your own salesperson and I'm terrible at it. And Sue Ellen did it because she was put in a situation too. And I like the idea of watching teenagers be put in a dire situation and see how they're going to figure their way out of it. I think you get a lot of ingenuity, you get, you get some unexpected things. So I'm curious about what the new story will do about sticking a teenager who's forced to survive and raise their family who may not have grown up in that environment. I don't I don't think Sue Ellen really had to take care of her siblings before her mom went away. So unlike a lot of teenagers who work in me or who live in maybe less well-to-do families, Sue Ellen's family and teenagers who kind of are within that realm of things currently, who knows what modern day equivalent there would be to finding a job in a thing. Plus, that's the other thing I forgot to touch on, social media. How do you remain anonymous nowadays? Right, one of the kids is going to be a hacker. One of the kids has to be a hacker, know how to like set up fake profiles and connect systems. Exactly, like they privatize all their social media. Like, so like not only are they having to now get a job in this, I don't know anything about like the new one other than they're just making it more diverse, but are they going to not have social media? Are they going to be active social media? Is it going to play a part in it? Because you saw how the Carolyn, she was like, oh, I called personnel and had to look up for her driver's license. They looked up for all this information. Now you just type in somebody's name online and you're going to find a million photos of them, especially a teenager. It's like, can you fake it in the same way? But you also now have influencers and more power to them faking it every day as well. Like they fake their lives potentially and their responsibilities and have created these followings and these careers. And there's a documentary on 
HBO called Fake Famous or something, where they highlight three ordinary people and they are pretty ordinary who don't have following on social media and they buy them followings. They do this, they do the photo shoots. They try to build fame for these people and turn them into influencers and spoiler, it works. So <laughs> like you, you can fake your way into becoming an online celebrity without work really. Well, I mean, it is a lot of work. It's just, it depends on what you're willing to do. So I'm curious to know what a teenager is going to do now to find an office job like is she is is the new one going to be in an office job those aren't as common nowadays and i don't know about you but i think kids look younger than they used to nowadays too like yeah. a 17 year old i would go you look 17 it's rare for me to see somebody who's 17 and being like oh you could pass for 25 like, right yeah doesn't have it. so all those layers to it i'm curious but i think this movie is such a time capsule for the time and highlights kind of the dichotomy between like kind of this desire to be what like a career person, which was ingrained in like kind of their heads is like this goal of like career mm -hmm. working woman or working person and still embracing your teenage fun beach friend life. And, and what I even value even more about this movie is she chooses to go to college like she might well it leaves it ambiguous but she wants to go to college potentially after like here rose is like oh you lied about all this but you did a good job and you know what we can find a place for you in this as a 17 right. year old now you know who you are and she's like you know what i still want to be a kid i still want to maybe maybe try college and nowadays you do see both like what we talked about a little bit earlier is the idea of an adult has changed, but we do see this rush to adulthood, but also a rush to stay a child. And people just want to make money now. Like people <laughs> don't want to work. Yeah. In this movie, it showed a teenager valuing hard work and doing it in a way where that work may be tedious, but it's appreciated. Mm -hmm. And I, I missed that. I, I had, I mean, I was at the late end, like, I mean, I was working more early 2000s, even though I started at the candy store at 12 in the late 90s. But like even a tedious job when it's respected makes you want to do it. So I don't know what's in store for the new version of it. But this movie just melts my heart that it's just I want to I want to be in this world where people are supportive and and encouraging of ideas and that level of mentorship and just fake it till you make it. And I think quarantine and COVID and all that, because that's kind of shifted everything in my life, like all live events and like mm -hmm. scenic stuff that I was doing doesn't exist anymore. So it's kind of forced me into more of my writing hat, which has fortunately been a good thing. But I also kind of had to put on this like, all right, it's go time. This is what I am. And this is what I have to accept. And when I really started breaking it down and everything that I had done in the past and what I was working on, I was like, why do I constantly doubt myself? And I just need to be a little bit more like Sue Ellen and just say like, I'm right on top of that Rose and just put it out there because good things can happen. So, so this movie is still in like directly, I relate to directly still and yeah i mean i could do a whole thesis on every character in it but i won't um so <laughs> i need to get you a shirt like yeah. uh, embrace your inner sue ellen i heard that uh, that phrase you used uh, you need a pillow or I, a shirt or something that i i would i would wear it or hang it on a wall a hundred percent embrace your sue ellen like inner sue ellen because or your inner swell i don't i don't yeah swell bothered me it's sue ellen she's sue ellen to me i'm not a part of her inner circle probably no 
yeah, for all these reasons why I adore this movie. And it just seemed like everybody making this movie had a good time. And I really hope that's true. I didn't do too much like searching online to find out, but I didn't see any scandals with the cast or anything that's happened since then or with anybody involved in the making of it. So that's also comforting to know that it looks like it's just like a solid group of people back then who are still doing solid, great things today. And um, one of the kids had a drug problem on set. That was about it. They just started cutting his scenes. And it was, it was the, not the older brother, but the next one was the one. The one who bought the diamond for the girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He had a, oh, apparently had a drug problem on set. So, and I'm like, wait, he looked like he was like 10. Hilarious. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just be real. Those teenage, like kids in the 90s, I mean, look at the cast of like Saved by the Bell and right. all the stuff happening behind the scenes. Ooh, there was a lot of stuff going down with mm-hmm. those. And again, I'm not like an expert on Christina Applegate's personal life, but I feel like she played characters that may make you think that, but she actually wasn't really, she didn't get sucked into that no, as much I don't as other so. Yeah. So, so she's just a treasure. I, I adore Christina Applegate. And she wasn't this the, movie. They wrote this for Winona Ryder and they casted Justine Bateman first and then she had to back out. So it became, and apparently Ed O'Neill, they had a connection to him and he talked to Christina Applegate to get her to look at this one. Well, and she was like, I mean, an up, I mean, Married with Children was kind of, I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact dates of it, but she was already a thing because of Married with Children. It, it, it was so like that a was, couple that seasons was, in, yeah. That was probably a huge draw for them to be like, we can get Christina Applegate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, Winona Ryder was huge too then. And, ooh, I did not know that because, again, I love this movie. I'm not one of those people who's going to be like, I need to know everything about it too because I clearly analyzed just the movie as a whole right, enough. Right. I don't think I could actually picture... Winona Ryder doing the it would be a very different movie well the writers wanted it to be more dramatic when they wrote it it was called the real world and the title was changed because they didn't want to get into problems with MTV and I honestly think had this movie been called the real world it wouldn't have become a cult classic popular because part of the attraction is that title is just like what yep I, I think that's that was a good move but apparently the the only contention uh was between the director and the writers during the making of this movie because they want they had a vision for it being a certain way but they went more comedic with everything and that wasn't their intention fascinating and now i just want to like if any of the writers ever for some one reason want to listen to me ramble about my love of this movie i would love to talk to these writers because now (laughs) that i've like dabbling into screenwriters like screenwriting and i had an opportunity to do a script and things are in the works on other things. I get I get that idea of just like having one idea and then people being like, well, you need to change this, this, and this. And you're like, mm, do I though? Because I think the writing is pretty brilliant in this right. movie. So I just, I hope that the writers are happy with what it became because yeah. I bet you they were ripping out their hair during the process of it. But I hope that they managed to still put out something or at least find that middle ground where they're excited right. by it as well because it would really like hurt my heart a little bit if most I found writers out are uh, getting contentious with what they even a great movie the mm-hmm. writers like well it wasn't my original you know that happens i mean movies touch so many people's hands and what is from the writer afterwards it's like you gotta let it go and let it become what it does they, they did have one other casting swap uh, jennifer love hewitt 
was in it, and Kids Incorporated wouldn't let her go, so they got Danielle Harris. Okay. For Melissa. I I mean, Danielle Harris is wonderful. And I think I, I, Jennifer Love Hewitt could have totally done it, but I think Danielle Harris, if it was written the way that it ended up on screen when they were looking for Jennifer Love Hewitt for it, I think Danielle Harris was the better choice. I think it's more believable to see Danielle Harris with the whole like softball and the sports Mm -hmm. aspect. Not that Jennifer Love Hewitt couldn't do it. It just, I I remember seeing her on Kids Incorporated and other things when she was younger. And there was more, she was more in the Christina Applegate kind of fun and flirty vibe. Yeah, to Daniel it. Harris can um, give you more the pretty looking tomboy. Exactly. I think um, I think J- Daniel Harris would like sold the being put into the pink frilly dress and the big bow yeah. more so than like Jennifer Love Hewitt, where you would be like, I kind of believe that on you, Jennifer Love Hewitt. But Daniel Harris, you're just like, ooh, yeah. that's awkward. But I think Jennifer Love Hewitt, who I adore as well, would have done just fine in that role. But they, I, they were I'm, two of my crushes during that decade, so they went right with whoever they picked for that role. <laughs> well, there you go. So yeah, no, I mean, I love that you just like shared information about this movie that I did not know. So that is exciting for me. When yeah, did you so, first yeah, see this, the movie? I saw it on Fox. It was like a pr- big premiere on a Sunday night. I watched this movie, but I, di- I didn't see it on VHS. Or I don't think I saw it on VHS. Maybe I did before the Fox thing, but I re- specifically remember a Fox airing of it. I I know I saw it on VHS first. I would have been, it would have been, I probably would have been nine or 10. It was around the time of my parents' divorce. So like nine, 10 ish, 11, because I know my dad had moved out and we still were living at the, the, the family house. And there was a video store, like a VHS, like you go in, not a blockbuster, but just like an independent like movie store. And I used to, during the summers, just rent tons of movies. So it was like nineties movies galore. It like for me. So, I mean, I vividly like remember like renting like death becomes her and like, don't tell mom the babysitter's yeah. dead. Just like everything within that vein, like a lot of gold, like Goldie Hawn is just a national treasure too. So a lot of Goldie Hawn movies and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. It was around that time when I was on like a massive, like I what wasn't really that sociable. Like I was kind of more introverted at that point in time when I was younger and I just watched VHS as much as I could and just went and like rented my movies and went back and did it. And I know, I know that was one of the ones that I rented. So that would have been probably like 97, 96, 97, probably when I first saw it. So five years after it came out. So I was probably a little bit younger than the middle boy when I watched the movie and I was having like those angsty, like middle school crush problems and all that. I remember it then. And then I remember like showing because I was an RA in college as well. And I made my residents watch Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. I also made them all watch Showgirls. I mean, I didn't make them, but I love Showgirls. So like Don't Tell Mom is always on my list. And then like when I was living in New York, if I had friends over and they're like, oh, let's watch a movie. I have it on DVD because I own I know you have a massive DVD collection. It's so. not on Blu-ray yet. I know that. It's only on DVD right now. So It is still on HBO. It is on HBO, HBO Max. Max yep. So you can stream it, but I do have it on DVD. I had to buy it twice on DVD too because my first one went missing in college. I can be very critical of movies. Mm-hmm. 
for various reasons. I can appreciate a movie if I like the people in it, even if it's not the best, Mm -hmm. but then that's my own opinion. And if people want to hate it, I'm not going to get mad at them for it. It's when I'm hypercritical of movies that people are like, this movie is like a masterpiece and here's why. Then if I didn't like it, I will give them like a 10 page report on like every flaw of the movie, (laughs) like from a technical standpoint, just to being like, you can enjoy it, but you can't call it a masterpiece. So I mean, for me, like, I guarantee you nobody's sitting there going, like, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead was robbed during award season and should have been nominated. Like, I'm not that extreme on it, but I I appreciate the story and the lessons and the value. And you can find related things that are relatable in it. And you you can find the empowered nature of it and your inner Sue Ellen. You can find all those things within it. So I love it. If other people don't, I'm not going to grill them on being like, you're, you don't know movies if you don't get it. That's okay. What else? This is where we discuss other things we may have worked on, put out in the world, or just taken in movies, books, TV, music. So, Greg, what else? This quarantine, everything. I haven't been watching as many movies and TV things as you would expect because I I hate to even admit it, but I'm going to embrace it fully. I have become a YouTube person. I'm obsessed with YouTube. There are like 20 channels that I adore and I love. And I will put out some of them make sense. Some of them people probably would be like, really? But YouTube is kind of my like daily go to ranging from artists doing like random videos like Drawfee or Casey Golden or Chloe Rose art where they just like try out art products or create fun characters through random prompts. Or I even like watch some like unboxing like YouTubers for no reason at all. But I totally understand why those videos are like popular and like some of those pretty bubbly enthusiastic girls get hundreds of thousands and millions of views even though they have no connection like any other content relates to me personally (laughs) it's like you put it on and it's like you're hanging out with a friend who's just talking to you like I get the appeal of I just I don't know like this whole thing like for years I made I think I'm making a point of it is because for years I just never thought like highly of it or I just kind of questioned it or rolled my eyes at it And now I fully get the appeal of kind of that noise, especially when people are kind of more isolated and lacking connection, just putting on somebody like trying on clothes for 20 minutes, just video after video, it makes you feel like you're hanging out with somebody and that's great. Or I watch, and I don't know if you know this YouTube channel, but you would love it. CinemaSins. Oh, no, not me. Not for me. You don't like it? No. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, no. I don't like Like the the, way they wrote. No, I don't like those. Okay. It's just (laughs) the the official channel that does it. The official channel. Some of them are really good where they just kind of, they just watch the whole movie and like do 20 minutes of wrong, point out everything like wrong about it. It, some of it is hilarious. I could just watch those. Or I watch like what culture horror, like the the list of like 10 best villains in horror movies mm-hmm. or like the best like final girls or like the most random like death scenes or the most gruesome death scenes or the most shocking twists. Or mm-hmm. I don't know. I could just watch those videos on repeat. So YouTube is really become something I've embraced fully and I adore. And then podcasts are also my thing. And I get people hooked on podcasts all the time now, but you're wrong about is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I adore you're wrong about. And now they have kind of like 
branch off ones, which include maintenance phase and wire dads. So those three have like overlapping hosts. And I just adore those three podcasts. And then, and I watch a lot of astrophysicists on YouTube as well. One called Dr. Becky. She's lovely and wonderful. So my, my interests are quite a large range from watching like Mia Maples and Hopescope and Sierra Schultze do clothing videos or random like home makeover things to astrophysicists talking about black holes and like PBS space time. That is my life right now. Myself, my last episode, I talked, I'm doing this John Hughes five movie Blu-ray set review and talked about some kind of wonderful on the last one. But the, uh, this one I'll bring up. She's having a baby, which is an odd title because yeah. I feel like you can't say she's having a baby. It's got to be like, yeah. she's having a baby or she's having a baby or she's having a baby. Like it's it's just a weird, to me, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but I'm like, it's just a weird title where I feel like I have to be expressing it somehow like that. Not just, oh, like Kevin Bacon starring in She's Having a Baby tonight at 8 on HBO. Like, I just can't say it like that. True. But this is a I wacky mean, movie. Yeah. Have you seen She's Having a Baby? I have. It's been ages. I, I, that's been one. That was one of my like VHS ones. I swear. I yeah. remember that one. It's very family guy before family guy, like a little, like yeah. all, he like drifts off into these weird scenarios. It gets crazy. There's like a musical number with doing the lawn and it oh, was I a lot, it was about. a lot wackier than I thought. So like I went into, so I watched some, some kind of wonderful, which I thought would be a peppier movie. It was not she's having a baby i was like this is going to be a little more serious it was not so interesting uh that'll do it for today greg thank you so much for coming on and the (laughs) mind-blowing dissertation on don't tell mom the babysitter's dead that was outstanding i i don't think anyone's going to ever offer that anywhere so, I, I don't think anybody spent that much time thinking about that movie So if either. you found this podcast by searching <laughs> Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, you're welcome. You're welcome for that. I, I'm here with you, and we can all embrace our inner Sue Ellen together. Right. Excellent. <laughs> um, before we go, uh, let people know where they can find your work and keep up with you around the interwebs. So basically, my name is pretty easy to find, Greg Magoon. There's not that many of them. Type in my name. You can find my website. And otherwise... I'm more active on Instagram. Twitter gives me anxiety. So you can find me there, but I'll, I'll check things on it. I just won't post on it. But Instagram is the best way to go. And that is at the McGoonies. So T-H-E, the M-C-G-O-O-N-I-E-S. Yes, like Goonies, the movie. And I just decided to embrace my last name and add I-E-S to my handle. So there you go. Gotcha. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, written work on YSOBlue.com. There's more from the Brandon Peters Show this week. But until then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetersshow.com. 
For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. This is done, man.